Open up your Bibles to Genesis 38. If you've, uh, if you've got the Pew Bible in front of you this morning, we're going to be on page 33. Uh, and as always, if anyone has any questions as we work through this text, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and, and, and ask, ask a question, and we'll take a look at that towards the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we, uh, we are people who have made the proclamation that we are under the authority of the scriptures, that this book is uh, the inspired word of God, and that we look to it as the only infallible rule of faith that we have. Uh, Often that seems pretty straightforward. This morning, we're approaching a text where you, it's easy to just kind of go, what is going on here? Um, as we've seen in our study of Genesis, the, the full sinfulness and brokenness of fallen humanity is on display. Uh, and uh, it, it seems maybe a little disjointed uh, in, in the flow of the story. Uh, but God, you... Um, you put it here. You have designed this book this way, and I believe that we have something that we can, many things that we can learn from this text this morning. I just pray that that, that would be the case, God, that you would um, use me and my preparation and the Spirit of God in me to communicate truth, that your Spirit would speak to all of our hearts um, words that we need to hear, uh, and that uh, we would be strengthened and encouraged, God, that we would catch a vision of what it's like to be your people, uh, what you've called us to, and, and the goodness of that calling. Um, pray for those that are, I know there's a, a group of us that are, that are out camping this weekend. Uh, pray for their safety, uh, for their enjoyment, for their fun as they fellowship together. God, I pray for our city and, and all of the, the things that are going on at the park with the race and the spectators and the uh, all of the, the movement and the action. Just pray for safety and uh, just joy. And uh, God, I pray that, uh, yeah, that you would just make yourself known to us this morning. And give us insight into who you are and who you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you probably know the story. Uh, 1956, January 8th, 28-year-old missionary named Jim Elliott was with four other missionaries in South America, and they were speared to death by members of the Weodani tribe in Ecuador. They had gone there to meet this people group that was far from civilization and did not know the gospel of Christ their intent was to give them that good news. And through a series of events, they uh, were attacked and killed with very little fruit. 
A couple of years later, Jim's widow, Elizabeth, and the sister of one of the other missionaries, Rachel Saint, went back to the tribe to continue the work of the gospel. They went into this space with these people who killed Elizabeth's husband, Rachel's brother, three other men who were husbands, made five widows that day. And they decided that they were going to continue this work of giving the good news to this tribe. And partially because of the fact that these were women who were grieving the loss of men that the tribe had killed, many people in this tribe accepted the message of Jesus. Many people in this tribe were just awed by the love of God that was on display by these women. And the gospel began the process of transforming this violent, polygamous culture of this tribe. And this story broke out into the wider world. And even in the 1950s, our society thought that this was crazy. That these women would love these people that killed their husbands and their brothers so much that they would risk their lives to share the hope of Jesus with them. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that the means that God used to open the eyes of the Wadani tribe to the love of God was instrumentally the murder of Jim Elliott and his friends. Elizabeth Elliott said, we want to avoid suffering, death, sin, ashes, but we live in a world crushed and broken and torn, a world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his, outpoured, his poured out life and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him may then pour ourselves out for others. Eliot talks about our calling as being people who not only receive the life of Christ but then embody his example as being sufferers for the sake of other people. Last week, when we started this story of Joseph in Genesis 37, we said that kind of all of the rest of Genesis is about this uh, theme of God's sovereignty, how he is in control of the circumstances of the world. And we talked about how our suffering, remember Joseph was, is uh, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. By our suffering, God in his wisdom is crafting something ultimately for our good. But I think the question for us this morning is, what if our suffering is for someone else's good? Are we willing to suffer so that others might be blessed, even people that don't deserve it? See, the, the thing is, Genesis 38 comes out of nowhere, right? We just started this story about Joseph, and the very next chapter is going to pick up where we left off. Joseph is going to be in Egypt, and we're going to follow Joseph all the way to the end of this book. But Genesis 38 is this just strange detour into crazy, right? Like, what is happening here? And so I want to talk about two different things this morning. I want to, I want to see if we can glean some things from this story itself, because I think there's a lot of things that it can teach us. But then I want to take a look at the question, what is this doing here? What is the point of this chapter in service of the larger story? Is it just like 
There was this other thing about Judah that they had to fit somewhere and they just stuck it in and they got it wrong. They should have moved it. Or is God actually sovereign over his scriptures and is he working with the human authors to create a document that he actually wants to create that makes sense for a reason? And I think it's the latter. And it has to do with the question of suffering for the benefit of others. But we'll get back to that. I want to take a look at this chapter in three sections. I want to look at Tamar and Judah's sons. I want to take a look at Tamar and Judah, and then Tamar and her sons. So in this first section, verses 1 through 11, we just read it. It's a lot. I won't read it all again. But we see Judah kind of striking out on his own. Remember, in the last chapter, Judah is the mastermind of the scheme to sell Joseph into slavery, right? He's the one that gets, comes up with the idea. For whatever reason, right after this, he just decides to leave his family. Maybe he's racked with guilt. He can't be in the presence of his father who's constantly grieving. We don't know. But he, he moves on. And he finds a wife. He gets married and he has three sons. His sons grow older and he finds a wife for his first son named Tamar. His first son is named Ur. And the text just says, he was evil and God killed him. Why? We don't know. But God is sovereign over his creation. And God can do that. And if you start looking through the scriptures, we see that God actually does that, not a lot, but on occasion. He will just decide, you know what? I'm not going to put up with that. And they're not going to live anymore. A classic example of this in Acts 5 a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie with the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and a great fear came on all who heard. Now notice, it wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give all the money of their property to the church. Peter admits that they are free to do what they want with the proceeds of their land, but they made it look like they were giving the whole purchase price as a donation to the church, when in reality they were keeping back part of it. They were trying to make themselves look better than they actually were. Peter says, you're lying, you're trying to lie to God. And for whatever reason, at that point in the life of the church, that just wasn't going to happen. And God put an end to it by uh, Ananias just dying. And then later in the story, Sapphira comes in and maintains the story of the deception, and she just dies as well. Does God still do this? I, I have to think so. Now, we don't really have any way of knowing unless we receive some kind of prophetic word about it making pronouncements about why someone may have died and what sin they were guilty of is pretty foolish. But I think we learn from this text in Genesis and throughout the scriptures that God can, in his sovereignty, in his rule over the creation, just decide, hey, nope, you don't get to keep doing that. It's, it's over for you. You're done. That's his right and his privilege. And whatever it was about Judah's son Ur that was particularly wicked, God said, I'm not going to let you keep doing it. 
And so then we see Judah give Tamar to his second son, Onan. This is something called levirate marriage. Levir is a Latin word. It means husband's brother. And this is a pretty common ancient Near Eastern custom. We see it throughout the scriptures. It's in many different cultures. We read about it in Deuteronomy 25. It says, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Um, This is a uh, a method of protection for widows. In the ancient Near East, um, women didn't have the ability to inherit property generally. They didn't have the ability to work generally outside the home. And a widow was in a very vulnerable position. If her husband has died and she is childless, she has lost her means of support. And so this law is meant to provide for and protect widows by saying, hey, the second brother has a duty and obligation to marry his brother's wife in order to protect her, and then also to raise up an heir for the dead brother. So Onan's role is to protect Tamar by marrying her, as well as fathering a son that will get Ur's last name and his position in the family. But being a levir is a sacrifice. We see this in, if you read through the book of Ruth, this, this law kind of plays center stage in the book of Ruth. And, and there's a character in the book of Ruth that should be the levir for Ruth, or for, yeah, for Ruth and Naomi, but he doesn't want to. And then it passes to, to Boaz. Because taking on this role is a sacrifice. And in Onan's case, it's a sacrifice because If Ur dies, he becomes the firstborn son. And think of it this way. If if there is an inheritance, say there's three sons, the inheritance gets divided into four parts. The oldest son gets two parts and the other two sons get one part. But if Ur is dead, then the inheritance gets split up into three parts and Onan gets two parts. To kind of put some, uh, some math around this, imagine that Judah dies with an estate worth $1.2 million. If Tamar has a son that inherits his father, Ur's uh, portion, then Onan, the second son, he gets $300,000 out of the inheritance. But if Tamar is childless, then the right of the firstborn passes to Onan, and Onan inherits $800,000. Almost triple the inheritance amount. That's a lot of money. And so Onan doesn't have to do this. He could refuse to take on the role of the levir. He could say no. Deuteronomy makes allowance for this. It involves some public shaming. But if money is more important than the honor of caring for your brother's widow, you have a way out. You don't have to do this. But this is not what Onan does. Onan marries her, and then he uses her for his own sexual pleasure, and he prevents her from having a child. 
which prevents her from both securing her place in the family as a mother and providing for his brother's line. And there's really two acts of wickedness going on here. The first one is that Onan is unwilling to participate in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, right? All through this book, we've been hearing over and over and over again that sin and brokenness and death has occurred because of Adam and Eve, right? And God is gonna provide a redeemer, someone that is gonna come and make everything right. And every point in the story, we learn a little bit more of where that redeemer's coming from. And at this point in the story, we know that it's gonna come from the family of Jacob. And the 12 sons of Jacob, they know this story, They know that they're part of this special chosen line and that their children are going to be um, the ancestors of this one special child that's gonna come and make all things right. And knowing this, Onan is, he refuses. He's not gonna participate. He doesn't care. He cares about inheritance money and he cares about pleasure. But then also more intimately, Onan is dishonoring his wife. He's turned this profoundly important act of union between a married couple where each party participates in mutually self-giving for the sake of the other, and he's just using Tamar as an object of his own pleasure. And this isn't the grand point of this story, but it is, I think, a point of application for us. As those of you that are married couples, if you are struggling in the area of physical intimacy in your marriage, a really great diagnostic question is, are you engaging in that with your spouse as an opportunity to give of yourself for their benefit? Or are you looking to use them primarily for your own? This is what Onan is doing. And he displays his wickedness for large cosmic plan of God reasons and for more intimate personal ones, <laughs> and God kills him. It's pretty heavy. And so Shayla, the thirdborn, isn't old enough to get married. And so Judah tells Tamar, go home to your father's house and wait for him to be old enough and then I will give him to you. See, uh, since she's been married into Judah's house, Judah is the head of her household. And he could have released Tamar at this point. He could have said just, you're free from our family. Go back to your father's house. She would be a widow. She could have married anyone that she wanted. But he doesn't do that. He promises her to Shelah and he tells her to wait. So she goes home to her father's house, engaged to be married to the son. And she waits. So then we get to the next section, after a long time, this relationship between Tamar and Judah. After a long time, we find out that Judah's wife dies and Shayla grows up. And Tamar sees this and recognizes, hey, you know what? Judah is not going to give Shayla to me in marriage. We don't see this in the book of Deuteronomy, but in the Hittite law code, the Hittites were a a nation that lived north of Israel. There's a provision in the Leverite marriage law to be the father-in-law. In In Hittite law 193, it says, if a man has a wife and the man dies, his brother shall take his widow as wife. If the brother dies, his father shall take her. 
So it's possible that Tamar, uh, as, as a, a non-Hebrew person, and you know, Deuteronomy hasn't been written yet, and so it, it could be that she sees, one, Judah's not going to give me Shelah, and two, Judah is single now. Judah is a widower himself. So it's possible to argue that the honorable thing to do would, that for, would be for Judah to fill this role, but he's not going to do that. And so Tamar is locked in this perpetual widowhood. She's not free to go marry someone else because she's engaged to Shelah and she's at the mercy of Judah. But Judah here is just as apathetic about the purposes of God and just as lust-driven as his son Onan. He has three sons, two have died without children, and he's not going to let the third get married. Judah's not really interested in the promises of God either. He's not interested in carrying on the family line. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She's going to become pregnant by her father-in-law, forcing him to fulfill his responsibility to her as well as to her dead husband and the family line. And so Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and arranges to sleep with Judah. Gordon Wenham says, Tamar responds like a hard-headed businesswoman, finally exacting the rather serious pledge of Judah's seal and cord and staff, which as the legal surrogate of the bearer would have been a kind of ancient Near Eastern equivalent of all of a person's credit cards. The text shows Judah here to be a fool, led around by his sexual appetites. He's a man who makes stupid, stupid decisions. because he has no self-control. And Tamar takes advantage of this. And she gets pregnant. And we see that um, Judah's friend goes to deliver this goat that was promised. They can't find Tamar anywhere. And Judah comments that they need to quit searching or everyone will think they are foolish. And we look in as, as the readers and go, no, everyone knows that you are foolish, Judah. And then, remember last week, I talked about these kind of echoes of the story that keep bubbling up. Here's one. Judah, Judah fools his father using the symbol of Joseph's authority, this coat that he has, and the blood of a goat. And he creates this ruse by which he deceives his father. And we see here that Tamar fools Judah with Judah's symbols of authority, his seal and his cord and his staff, and this promise of getting a goat. There's these little literary nods back to the way these sinful tendencies have bubbled up in this family over time. And so then Tamar begins to show her pregnancy. Judah finds out about it. She's still technically engaged to Shayla, so she has been caught cheating on her fiance. And Judah calls for her to be put to death. But she pulls out all his credit cards and says, this was paid for with the man who owns these. And Judah at this point realizes that he has dishonored her all of these years and that her actions are more right than his have been. And then we get to the third section of the text, Tamar and her sons. We see Tamar give birth to twins 
And we get another story, another little story about the younger son triumphing over the older son. Zerah sticks his hand out, but Perez actually becomes the firstborn. The younger son triumphs over the older son. And we've seen it over and over and over again in the story of Genesis, that God is fond of exalting those that culture would say don't have the right to be exalted. And if you could imagine yourself as a reader of this story for the first time, and maybe some of you are, maybe some of you never heard the story before, maybe you're thinking, huh, I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen to Joseph. Joseph, the young son, has been sent away, but, but maybe this is a clue if we read on. And if we keep reading through the Old Testament, we see that Tamar becomes the hero of the story, not only because of um, the injustice done to her, but because she's the only one that faithfully carries out the family line. Ruth 4.12 says, May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Tamar's name becomes a word of blessing because she cared about the promised line. So that's just a quick like rundown of like what are the, what are the cultural things going on in this story? We're so far removed from it that you read it on first glance and you go like, I have no idea what's going on here. But within its historical context, it begins to make a little more sense. But that still doesn't answer the question, like, what is the point of this story? Why is this here? What does it have to do with Joseph? It's Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah leaves the family shortly thereafter. Judah is shown to have very little care for the promises of God. And then we see Judah openly shamed by his daughter-in-law. This is what we, this is the character portrait we get in Genesis 38 of Judah. He's just not great. But then as we keep going, in Genesis 43, we see that the prince in Egypt that we know is Joseph, but nobody else does, require that the sons bring their youngest brother Benjamin back to Egypt with them. And Jacob doesn't want them to go. Benjamin is Jacob's other favorite son now that Joseph is supposedly dead, the only other son of Rachel. And we see that it's Judah that steps up and swears to protect him. In Genesis 44, it, it looks like Benjamin is going to be enslaved by these, this Egyptian prince. And Judah offers himself as a substitute. Rather than being the source of his father's grief at the loss of Benjamin, he says he couldn't bear seeing his father lose another son that he loves. And he offers himself as a slave in Benjamin's place. In Genesis 46, we learn that Judah has become his father's right-hand man. And in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he goes through birth order. And he starts with Reuben, the firstborn, but he doesn't really bless Reuben. He, he kind of passes over Reuben because Reuben, back in chapter 35, slept with his father's wife. 
And then he gets to Simeon and Levi and he passes over them because they committed genocide against the Shechemites in chapter 34. And so the fourth son, Judah, is actually the one that gets the blessing of the firstborn and becomes the head of the clan. Judah's character is transformed at some point. Figuring out Judah's character especially is the point of all the tests that Joseph puts them through. He's suspicious of his brothers and he wants to see if they've changed after all these years. And he arranges all these tests and we'll get there in future chapters to see the character that's in them. And the only data point we have to explain this is Judah's humiliation by Tamar. Her willingness to call out the injustice being done to her in a radical way seems to be, it's the, the text is, this is the only thing we find in the text that this is the turning point in the life of Judah. By the time Joseph sees him again, he's a man, man of character and integrity and he becomes the head of the family. Ruth 4, 18 through 22 says, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. See, Tamar's initiative is what is responsible for the family line that leads to King David. And King David's family line leads directly to Jesus. And Jesus is the one promised to Eve that would come and crush the head of the serpent and provide redemption and salvation for the world. He would be the one that would restore broken humanity and be a blessing to the nations. So I think the point of this story is that if we zoom out a little bit, the story of Joseph is really the story of the redemption of Judah. The point of this narrative where we will see God at work moving in Joseph's life through success and tragedy as he becomes the ruler of Egypt and saves his family from starvation is at a deeper level the story of God transforming Judah's character and protecting his family through which the king would one day come. And so this takes us back to the question of suffering. The whole story of Joseph speaks over and over and over to the sovereignty of God and his ability to allow suffering in his people's lives. But not because he's capricious or wicked, but because he seeks our good. That he allows things that we don't understand that cause us to suffer but if we take him at his word, they will turn out better for us in the end. And that's a word of comforting, uh, that's a word of comfort for us. If we're Joseph in this story, the fact that he's going down to this pit and this prison and this um, servitude and slavery, but one day he will be the ruler of Egypt, that's a story that we like to tell about ourselves. We're all struggling. We're, maybe we're suffering with these things. We're saying, oh, God's got something better for me in the future. And in some way, that's going to be, it's always true. 
We are destined for his kingdom. But what if our suffering is for the good of other people? What if our suffering is meant for the good of other people that we don't like? What if our suffering is for the good of people that have actually caused us harm? Joseph's story shows that Joseph's suffering was meant for good, and it was for his good. But the fact that Genesis 38 is in here shows that it was also for Judah's good. Joseph's suffering saved Judah's life, and it protected Judah's family. And Judah's family is the family that leads to Christ. And that, I think, is a really hard thing to grapple with. It's hard enough to be suffering deeply and to have faith that God is going to do something good for you and those you love and those you care about in the future. It's much harder to grapple with the idea that God might be allowing you to suffer for the, the benefit of someone else. Elizabeth Elliot said, if my life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will fill a multitude when a loaf would only satisfy a little boy. She saw that her suffering, her husband's death, the fact that her family was forever changed by this act of wickedness by these tribal people was a means that God chose to use to bring the light of the gospel to thousands. And sure, God was out for her own good, for her own sanctification. She, if you listen to the, the or read the writings of Elizabeth Elliot or listen to her speak, her, the, the process of God drawing her close to himself is everywhere in the way she understands her sufferings. But also, so many others came to saving faith in Christ because of her suffering, because of the suffering of the children who lost their fathers and the women who lost their husbands, not to mention the men who lost their lives. And Elliot got to the point in her life where she could rejoice in that, that she could be excited that she was chosen to be used for such a great work. And this is, this is something that we don't just come to naturally. This just isn't built into us. This is the work of the Spirit of Christ in us over time, forming us into people that see the world right side up. It's the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit testifies of him and the Holy Spirit is crafting character in you that shapes you to be like Jesus because this is what Jesus is like. In Romans 5, Paul says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more? having been reconciled, will we be saved 
by his life. See, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus suffered, yes, for the glory set before him, for his own ultimate good and exaltation, but he suffered for us. He suffered for his enemies, people who hated him, the people that had him killed, the ones ultimately responsible for all of the death and the destruction in the world. That's you and me. See, we're Judah in this story. And Jesus, our our Joseph, suffers on our behalf. And not just on our behalf, but because of our doing, right? Judah is the instrumental cause of Joseph's slavery. Judah is the one that chooses by his own wickedness to cast off his brother and send him down into the pit. And this is where we find ourselves, that because of our own sin and wickedness, we are the ones that put Christ on the cross. Judah didn't deserve to be saved after he condemned his brother. And we don't deserve to be saved either. Yet Jesus chooses to suffer on our behalf on the cross to save us, to rescue us. People who are his enemies. And I think... This morning, it, for us, it's, it's a real sobering call to take your faith seriously because I, I know maybe, maybe most, maybe all of us in the, this room would really struggle with that. It's, it's easy to see it in a Bible story that happened a long time ago, but imagine the people in, you are, in your life that actively hate you, that actively do you harm. Maybe you're involved in some kind of financial dispute or, or family struggle, or maybe there's actually been crimes committed against you. Can you imagine God saying, hey, I'm going to bring suffering into your life so that that person will be redeemed, so that that person will be saved? I mean, who's going like, yes, sign me up for that. And yet, as we are transformed by the power of God to be people that see the world the way Jesus sees it, we will become people who have a radical, strange compassion and love even for our enemies. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when, a man, when God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And that's a really good, like, dark, motivational phrase. In one sense, it appeals maybe to maybe the men in here, your kind of Spartan instinct, like, you know, running on the battlefield, suicide mission. And that's good. But there's a twist to that calling. See, the twist is that that Jesus, by his grace in us, he, he transforms us, not into people who begrudgingly lay down our lives for others, but who rejoice in the privilege of being able to be poured out for other people. Jim Elliott, before he gave his life for the Weodani people, wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He seemed to have a vision of the love of God and the kingdom 
to where he could joyfully go into a situation that was dangerous, could joyfully go into a situation where he had an opportunity to lose so many things and to lay those things down, to give those things up for the sake of not just, not just other people, but people that were actively trying to kill him. And so as you, as you think about this story this morning that just kind of comes out of nowhere and is so weird culturally, try to see it in the light of its place in this story that God is saving Judah through Joseph's suffering, that, that God is providing for Judah's family in Joseph's suffering. And that ultimately the, that the, the king, the Messiah, Jesus, is coming from Judah's line. And that Jesus would be a blessing to the whole world. And God is using Joseph's suffering. And remember that, that Joseph is, is an imperfect picture of Jesus. Because Jesus saves us, all of us who did not deserve saving through his suffering, which we all played a part in causing. And while it may be difficult to experience suffering at all, the idea that God has a plan for good in it is something that we need to cultivate in our hearts. And we also need to broaden our perspective to, to sense that maybe part of that plan has just as much to do with bringing good to our enemies as it does to bringing good to ourselves. Let's do some questions. Uh, would she then have become Judah's wife or would she have returned to her family and who would have supported her financially with the two boys? Yeah, so the, the kind of implication in the text, and I think it comes from the line um, in verse 26, and he did not know her intimately again, is the, way, is the narrator saying, uh, yeah, they, Judah became the person that cared for her, but because of the situation of their relationship, they didn't continue to function that way as husband and wife. So the, the two boys and Tamar become part of Judah's family moving forward. If my suffering might be used for another person's good, should I work to avoid or be delivered from suffering? <sighs> Maybe, I don't know. That's a good question, isn't it? I, I, think, I think part of it is like we don't, we just don't know the future, do we? We just don't have any sense of what's going on. And, and we see um, many times in the scriptures a call for justice. And so the idea that we should just like roll over and let ourselves suffer uh, is not something that we necessarily glean from scripture. But we also see Jesus called to turn the other cheek when we, are, uh, when we experience suffering. And so I think... Um, 
without knowing, you know, a specific scenario, I would say, like, I wouldn't be too eager to, like, rush into suffering. I don't think that's our calling. But I would say when you experience suffering, uh, don't, just be, don't just react to it. Be someone who, who takes that in and asks the question, okay, God, where are you in this? Because God is always in it. And is he in it so that you can push back against suffering and work for justice? Or is he in it so that you can lay down your life for others? And that answer might be different depending on the situation. How are we to understand Tamar's sins of deception and sex, et cetera, while the text points to her righteousness in it? Yeah, that's one of those things where like the, over and over and over again, the people that are highlighted in this book are not morally pure people, are they? Like we could point to Tamar and say like, yeah, she shouldn't have deceived her father-in-law. She shouldn't have propositioned him as a prostitute. She shouldn't have entered into this arrangement without being married. And we have all kinds of backup for that, right? That, that God pr- prohibits things, that these are, this is not the way you're to behave. This is the kind of people you're meant to be. But the, the narrator of Genesis doesn't have anything to say about that. It's, it's often that the way this story is told, we are meant to draw out who is being condemned. Sometimes it's like, Ur was wicked and God killed him. Like, we, we can be pretty clear about that. But sometimes it's less clear. And because the narrator doesn't point that out, I don't think we're meant to look at that and condemn Tamar. But I would also say because of what we know about holiness and purity in, in general, we shouldn't hold up Tamar as an example. Like, we shouldn't be like this. You should be like Tamar and you should deceive people and... That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that both of these people are behaving in ways that are um, less than ideal, right? Not God's plan for marriage and sexuality. And yet, at the end of it, Judah recognizes, wow, I should have, I should have done this correctly so that Tamar didn't have to do it deceptively. So again, I don't think we're meant to see Tamar as an example of virtue, uh, but the narrator's not interested in casting blame on her either. How would you imagine the situation was traumatic enough to lead Judah to such a transformation in his life and character? Was it the public shame? Part of this is speculation because we just don't know. Um, all, the, all the data points we have are we see Judah being a terrible person and then many years later as a pretty honorable man who's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others. And the only, I mean, we could say, well, there's probably half a dozen different things that happened in his life that the text doesn't record. And that might be true, but the text doesn't record them. So all we have here is this, this chapter. And so my guess is it would be the fact that he was publicly shamed, that it has to do with his place as a patriarch in the family. He reacts really strongly to Tamar, she should be burned to death. Like that's, that's not typically a, um, if we go back to kind of the, the law in Deuteronomy, that's not, that's a pretty harsh sentence. And so he's very self-righteous and justified in himself and she immediately knocks him down in front of a bunch of other people. And 
that's the only thing that we see that would have begun this journey of transformation. And sometimes that's the case. I mean, I, I know there are moments in my life that in isolation, they are maybe not life-altering, but they, they just tweak something a little bit. They just change the course of your thinking or your life and, and get you to move down a different direction. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have experienced like, yeah, this thing happened to me. And, and in isolation, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it, it was that, that it, it's that point that I point to that, that would shift my perspective and, and change the direction of my life. And, and that's the only thing that the text gives us. So I have to assume that what happened. Good questions. We're going to take communion this morning. And I feel, I don't say this every week, but I feel like in light of this text, it's appropriate. God, we saw God take some pretty drastic steps to get rid of wicked people. And that's kind of jarring for us. God doesn't usually act that way. Um, But it's appropriate, I think, to mention that when Paul is instructing the Corinthian church about the communion meal, he warns them that because many of them are living in selfishness and division in the church, some of them are, are coming early and getting drunk and taking food away from the poor and they're not treating each other well, he says, um, they were approaching the communion table in an unworthy manner. And he says, this is why many of you are sick and ill among you and many have died. And that's a, again, that's a weird thing to think about that our heart posture, the way we are dealing with others in the church, the, the selfishness and division that we are causing As we come to the communion table, we are approaching the sacrifice of Jesus' body and his blood, this this ritual that commemorates his death in an unworthy way. And in the Corinthian church, at least, God was causing illness and even, again, killing people because of their broken hearts. This practice that we do every week of taking the body and the blood of Christ into ourselves as an act of allegiance to Jesus and submission to his authority over our lives, it's serious. Paul says you could die. And that warning isn't meant to discourage us from participating in communion, but instead it's, it's meant to encourage us to take a look at our lives. Because God's grace is here for us. He pours it out for us. He wants this relationship with us. And one of the ways he distributes his grace to us is through our participation in the Lord's table. But as we get ready to do that, ask yourself the question, are you, are you living in unrepentant sin? Are you, um, especially with other believers, are you in, in, in relationships of discord and division? Are you um, mistreating someone? Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a spouse, someone in this body, someone in, in, God, in the people of God and from another body. Is there something that you need to confess, to repent of, to turn away from right now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you? Is there an attitude or behavior that you have that puts you at odds with who Jesus is that you need to bring before the Lord and say, I, I, need, I need help getting rid of this? I need to be changed. 
we don't want to be people that take the grace of God lightly. The sacrifice of Jesus for his enemies, for us, is the centerpiece of the gospel. And as we live that out every week, Paul says we need to to be serious about it. We get to be joyful in it. We get to celebrate the good news of Jesus and the fact that he's redeemed us from sin and death. But we should not be people who are flippant about it. We need to be taking it seriously. And so I would just encourage you to take a few minutes and and ask the Spirit to search your heart and see if there is anything in you that is is causing or participating in division, self-centeredness, particularly in the body of Christ, and, and give that over to the Lord, and then come and take communion with the rest of the church. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.